Welcome to episode 212 of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. This show was recorded on Thursday, 25th of April, 2019. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and you're listening to the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. And guess what? The roundtable aspect of the show is back. In theory. On Sunday, we're hoping to record an episode with at least one of the show regulars. But back to today. I've got two conversations to share with you. Via the Voice Over Internet Protocol, I spoke earlier in the week with Zach Pashak, owner of Detroit Bikes. This Canadian music festival founder moved to Detroit when the city was less than fashionable, when it was possible to bike around downtown in Motortown, Motown without seeing hardly any motors. Zach explains the social inequalities behind this seeming car-free nirvana. And I murder the famous joke about how to make a small fortune in the bike industry. But before that, there's some in-situ audio I recorded in Scotland at the weekend. I was standing in front of a run-down mill in the Tweed Valley town of Innerleithen. This is just behind the town's buzzing high street, buzzing with bikes, that is. Innerleithen is one of Scotland's premier downhill and enduro destinations with a world-famous lift-fed trail centre. The town could soon be home to more than just gravity trails, however. It could become a tech epicentre, as revealed by Danny Cow of the Mountain Bike Centre of Scotland, an innovations initiative backed by the Scottish Government and a bunch of universities. The 18th century Kailu Mill, which uh, used to churn out cashmere, could soon pump out the next big thing in mountain biking, because there are plans to turn the mill into the world's first MTB innovation centre, a hub of excellence and tech know-how surrounded by a clustering of mountain bike businesses. The conversation with young whippersnapper Danny starts with him revealing quite how ancient I am. Danny, we are in the beautiful, beautiful Tweed Valley, which is now internationally famous. Yes. Because of its world-class mountain biking. Yes. Which we've had here for like 25, nearly, nearly, nearly 30 years. Did you not ride here when it first started, Carlton? I, I did, actually. If you, mm. want to, if you want me to go completely historical... History lessons. Arthur Phil- okay. I wasn't going to do this, but you, you prompted <laughs> uh, Arthur Phillips was the guy who first came to Glentress. He was working as a civil servant for his last year of employment, and this is we're now talking 86, okay. 87 maybe, he was allowed to have take a company car with him when he left his job. 
So for his whole last year of his uh, job, before he retired, he got a, a Land Rover. Okay. And he got a Land Rover because he had plans for doing this amazing mountain bike centre at this just totally nondescript forest at that time. Okay. Which then became Glen Tress, uh, which then became this world class. Yeah. So yes, I've ridden here for yeah, definitely since 1986. Brilliant. Brilliant. When and nobody's heard of Arthur Phillips now, okay. sadly. But uh, he was the guy who started all this. Okay. But now we are talking about something that is certainly potentially a European first, potentially mm -hmm. even a world first. Yes. And we are going to put on, on record here that you can't say everything that's going to be happening here. So sometimes Not you might yet. say, oh, oh I can't, yep. can't say yep. that. But there are some bits we can talk about. Yes. So we are standing in front of Kerley Mill. Thank you. Kerley Mill in, uh, in Leithen. And this is uh, an old woolen mill. Textile mill. Textile Cash, mill. Cashmere, cashmere was the last fine one. Fine yep. cashmere. And it was 1700s when it was built. Yep. And you can actually, looking at it now, you probably can think, yeah, I can imagine that being built in the 1700s. It's in a, a state of disrepair, yes. you, you could say. But this is going to be, Danny, this is going to be the uh, an or the MTB Innovation Centre. So, so give me a pen portrait of what's going to be happening here in front of us in, in a time scale of what? A few years, mm -hmm. approximately. Um, so we've identified the Kerley Mill as our preferred option. Um, it's not the option, there's obviously a lot of uh, things to do to get there. We don't own the site for first. It's, it's a, you can see that there's a lot of development going here. Part of the land in the background is going to be houses, although we've had fantastic uh, conversations with the owners, Whiteburn. So our hope is, um, we, we're currently in discussions with the, the, the Borderland City and Region deal, which is a city and region deal like many others across the UK, for investment here for the uh, tourism element. And then on the side that I work more closely on is um, yeah, mountain bike innovation development. So our hope is that this building or AN other within this area, the Tweed Valley, um, will be host to what we feel is a world's first mountain bike innovation hub. What, why do we need? Uh, a mountain bike innovation hub. So to, to, to step back a little bit, um, you've just illustrated how mountain biking in the Tweed Valley has been on the go for a number of years now um, with the tourism element, obviously with the creation of the Seven Stains and the investment in the early noughties, Glentress and Erleith and so on and so forth, it's boosted. Um, Moving on, Scotland obviously has the outdoor access code, so we've got an awful lot of great mountain biking in the area. Um, where my project kind of came in was we took notice that if Scotland was such a great place to mountain bike, people were mountain biking here all year round, we didn't really see a manufacturing centre and, uh, and, and, and cycling companies that kind of reflected that. There's obviously Endura Clothing, who are a big, big company, but then after that, it was a sharp drop off to the kind of second biggest. So, sorry, a wee bit of history here, but 2014 with partners developing mountain biking in Scotland, Scottish Enterprise and Edinburgh Napier University, who I work for, we set up the Mountain Bike Centre Scotland, which is an innovation project. So in the past five years, since 2014, we've engaged with just over 250 businesses within Scotland who make a variety of cycling products or services. Sorry, a wee bit sales pitch here, but I'll come to a point. So we're, um, it could be someone making a sports drink, it could be someone making bike frames, uh, making a digital app, and really we're wanting to create an ecosystem of companies that make mountain bike and cycling products or services. Great, fantastic. So where we are here now is, 
this is next level stuff you know we, we, we've been inspired by other innovation centers around the world like bike valley portugal and uh, bike valley flanders it's a road which is road bike valley flanders uh, we're not going to be the same as that i can tell you exclusively we won't be building a wind tunnel um we where, where they move more on the road and the aerodynamics uh, we will be more on the um on mountain biking so we have not yet finalized the spec list for the building but and there's not everything we can talk about but you can expect to see if you look at flanders and what they do on aerodynamics we'll be doing something similar with mountain bikes with the wear and tear and the abuse that they get suspension being one e-mountain bikes being one and just to paint the picture here we yes. are surrounded by hills yes we are surrounded by world-class hills in that you've yes. got enduro that way yes you've got uh, uh, fantastic gravity that way and you, you have got road yes riding here as well but yes. mainly this is the this is a mountain bike area yeah i mean obviously we're sitting here on the easter weekend um where it's 20 degrees which for the record carlton it's like this every single day <laughs> yeah. in scotland as, every time as, i've been it's been like exactly <laughs> and it never rains um so you can see that the, the, the town is heaving today so i think symbolically that the, the mill at its peak employed three to four hundred people in this area um it obviously closed down a few years ago we know that the tweed valley and the leading peebles like a lot of areas a lot of deindustrialization and people mainly commute to edinburgh and there's not many high value jobs so that's something for this particular area that the borderlands deal and and the local council um you know and, and i should point out that this is this is not my project by any means i mean the main guy leading this is is ed shoot who works for developing mountain biking in Scotland, who is the Tweed Valley mountain bike project coordinator, who's done a ton of work on this. Who are Glentress? We're based at Glentress, yes. Which is about three miles? Three, four miles yeah. down the road, yeah. Um, and also Scottish Enterprise, uh, my boss, Professor Gant, Florida James, in Edinburgh Napier University. Uh, and then we've had tons of support from both the council, Scottish Borders Council, and Scottish Enterprise. Um, so, Yes, that was a long rambling one, but basically I'm just, we, we, we've been working with Scottish SMEs 2014 to now, and now we're looking at really taking this next level global stuff. So if we, if we take that Bike Flanders yes. model, yes. which has Ridley, yes. uh, Laser, I think are there. Bioracer. Yeah, Bioracer yes. there. So we, we basically have companies who co-locate there. Yes for all sorts of you know very good reasons of, for mm -hmm. the, the the tech that's there but also just it like becomes then a, a center of excellence and a center where everybody then travels to yes so you are thinking not just having uh, testing equipment here but you you think you could get some businesses here yes. who already exist yes so i mean if we pick the the, the tweed valley just already organically we can see that adrian bedford from swarf he relocated here to Glen Tress um, a couple of years ago. If we just walk a couple hundred metres from here, we'll see uh, Findra Clothing mm -hmm. have got their uh, office and shop on the high street. So these things are already happening. Um, and there are, there's people moving here for lifestyle choices. You know, there's, there's, it doesn't matter if they're working mountain biking or not, they're working IT or the financial services area in Edinburgh. And, and Inner Leithen and Peebles and the area is, is booming, as is the rest of Scotland. Um, but, uh, uh, sorry, I've lost my train of thought, Carlton. Where well, was go, I? Go back to Inleithen. Yes. So, 
When I, when I, and I, I, I drove through because yes. my son's actually racing not, not yes. so far away on his road bike, and then I came came backwards. So I, it's a few years since I've, I haven't, you know, uh, I've come through Glen Tress and in Leiden a few times over the, the past thirty years, and it's very very noticeable to me when you come through and it's like there are so many high end mountain bikes, yeah. not and some on on roofs of cars, yeah. but then every restaurant, every cafe, there's yeah. there's ten bikes outside. And it's like what has happened to this town? So this there's a very good reason yeah. that any politicians would yeah. want to support projects like this because yeah. it, it it brings money it into does. the area and, and the tourism element is is grown and is growing and there are plans for it to grow and and with if we look at the Tweed Valley as a whole it's through design and through organic growth has moved into different offerings so at the moment Inner Leithen is more of your enduro and downhill riders will come here but then Glen Tress it's about to get some more investment in the near future through a, a deal the forestry have done that's your more family friendly easy access trail centre stuff so Within that package of just a few miles apart, there is a fantastic offering. So without doubt across Scotland, I mean, you see the developments in Loch Aber as well. Uh, there's a huge uh, plan for Aberdeenshire too, on the tourism side of things. And then over and above that, we see a real clamouring for manufacturing, uh, other jobs here. So going back to your Bike Valley Flanders um, and, uh, kind of comparison, we see there being some form of incubation here. Small startups can come here, like the ones I'm already working with at Mountain Bike so, Centre Scotland. So, tech equipment that yes. a company wouldn't be able to afford by itself, yeah. maybe actually manufacturing here, as in, yes, I mean, is, is, the, is the space there to like somebody got, if somebody became an in, in the next Endura, yeah. they could start here, grow, and yes. then. They could start here and grow. Our hope is they'll all, uh, companies, in, in, I mean, bear in mind, this isn't going to happen all overnight. It'll be a, a 10 year plan. Our hope is that the companies will co-locate to the area as well. I mean, we know that within the whole Borders area from Gala Shields, Walkerburn, and Arleys and Peebles, you know, there's scope for, for jobs. There's, there's the train line to Gala Shields, which has really boosted that area. That's about 12 miles away from where we are. Um, and yeah, we see small scale manufacturing innovation prototype in there. If someone, we, we want people to grow the nest, leave the, grow and leave the nest. So if someone wants to co-locate to within the vicinity and then dip into the facilities here, and then also it should hopefully build a skills base as well for the area too. With, I mean, obviously everyone thinks of bikes, they think of someone welding a steel frame, and that is important. That will be part of it. And we hope that there, we can maybe get capital equipment that will help um, you know, companies de-risk investments and share there. But we are also looking at high-end innovation you know, how can we have an instrumented trail around here that test tracks? And again, our plan is Scottish SMEs, first of all, bring in the rest of the UK companies and then have an offering for, for the big boys from the rest of the world. Uh, because this area is going to be mountain bike central, so almost like um, in Utah, you've got about 10, 15 different bike companies because a lot of the bike uh, composite engineers, for instance, have come from aerospace, yes. are in that area anyway. Yes. So you're looking to kind of create that from scratch and yes. get the expertise to come to the valley, just yeah. the whole valley, and then that will then feed, whether they co-locate to their, this premises, yeah. whether or not, but if they're just within 10 miles, they would then come here and test. And it's that kind of, it's expanding the whole yeah. valley, not just that one building. No, and, and I think, I mean, where we see this, having its USP is, 
you've got world-class trails here and you have a, an innovation and product testing centre here that people can build stuff and immediately go out and ride it. But we are less than a 60 minute drive from Edinburgh and 90 minutes to two hours from Glasgow and about two and a bit from Newcastle. So within the, 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 the slightly wider area, there are nine universities. There are, uh, you know, a huge manufacturing base as well. Because Heriot Watt's not far, is it? Heriot Watt, Watt is a like a, what, a key partner. Uh, Heriot, well, Heriot Watt, we, we, we're a partner. They, we work a lot with them on the textile side of things. So their textiles college. Uh, I have to name check a guy, Jim McVie, there, who's done a lot with our textiles companies. Um, so their campus is in Gala Shields. Um, the university that hosts the Mountain Bike Centre of Scotland is Edinburgh Napier University which has a few campuses uh, just up the road. So they'll be the, the lead university on this. But we also have fantastic links in with the University of Strathclyde. Um, now, going back to your point on creating a skill set and people in the composites industry, you can see that, say, uh, uh, down the, I think a lot of the, say, the English bike industry or the rest of the UK bike industry, it can piggyback a lot on motorsports and the motor industry, say, Warwickshire, mm -hmm. say, the aerospace down in uh, Bristol Way and so on and so forth. Now, uh, Scotland had a lot of heavy engineering, shipyards, coal mining, etc., and some there's some fantastic manufacturing going here. I've got one guy who, um, talk a little bit about his project, but basically um, he is a renewables engineer. So his, he trained in and developed wind turbine gearboxes, wind turbines, generators, so on and so forth. Now, he has uh, taken that skill set and is moving it into developing gearboxes and so on and so forth for the mountain bike and cycling industry. So we have a big renewables area there. There's also a large investment coming in, sorry, acronym hell here, so apologies. We know mm -hmm. it's like with the public sector. We love an acronym. Um, so NMIS, N-M-I-S, is a big Scottish government scheme, the National Manufacturing Institute of Scotland. So that's gonna have um, capital equipment. There's a lightweight manufacturing center in Strathclyde as well. Again, as I said, 90 minutes to two hours away. So we're creating a skill set of people, of industries, of supply chain. That's what we're trying to do here. You know, we, we, we started 2014. There wasn't that many companies that I worked with. It's grown. Uh, you know, we've now got a few companies of scale in 2019. And we know that this won't happen overnight. You know, it's, it's a long-term plan. Um, we think that we can get enough, you know, Scottish SMEs, enough interest from the rest of the UK. And then um, what we need is some cutting edge research and commercialization. And it's very, very important is the knowledge exchange between universities and industry. So that rest of the UK is interesting. Yes. Because you mentioned Newcastle and yes. how, how close we are to Newcastle. So that's where I've come from yes. from this morning. Yeah. So it's just over two hours to get here. But that's England. Yes. And this is Scotland. Yes. And is there any uh, UK cash? going into these projects or is it all Scottish cash and then how can an English company come in here and benefit yeah. from Scottish cash so uh, what yeah. kind of well yeah English stuff are you yes. and then not just English international international yeah so uh, up until now uh, Mountain Bike Centre Scotland that's been a Scottish funded project uh, from agency Scottish Funding Council paid for by Scottish Government um, so up until now I pretty much just engaged with companies that are within Scotland that's kind of what my I'm paid to do and what my remit is. This is obviously going to be bigger. Um, the We don't know the exact details yet, to be honest, but with these city-region deals, they are mixed funding between Scottish and Westminster governments. So this will have 
uh, funding from, you know, we, we, I can't tell you now how the engagement is going to work with rest of UK companies, but we now have an offering and facilities in the next few years that we are going to engage with companies rest of UK and bring them in. I couldn't guarantee someone in Newcastle what the difference in funding is between someone in uh, Edinburgh, but it's going to, we're going to have the capacity now mm. and the remit to deal with companies pan-UK and hopefully internationally too. So whether Brexit happens or not, we don't mm-hmm. know at the moment. No. That's, that's literally still up in the air. Yes. But in a post-Brexit uh, scenario, mm-hmm. the, the, certainly the UK government mm-hmm. has been very big on, in effect, reshoring yes. and doing stuff here, and that's the Brexit opportunity. Yeah. But you're doing this even without a Brexit. But do you see any, any upsides, downsides with Brexit? Uh, oh, thanks for that question. <laughs> um, <laughs> what I will, I'll give you a politician's answer here and change tack a little bit. What I do see, going back to reshoring just a moment ago, I think when we may have bikes that cost a few hundred pound and they're aluminium frames, it's very, very hard with the wage costs that we have in the UK to make those and sell them competitively compared to imports from the Far East or say Eastern Europe. However, with e-bikes coming in and i'm not just talking about e-mountain bikes e-commuter bikes cargo bikes as well which is fascinating it increases the value and complexity of each unit and this isn't just for scotland if you read bike europe and speak to as we do with kevin main at cycling industries europe there's more and more reshoring some carrots some stick because there was obviously the anti-dumping duties as well coming back to the european union um now, going back to Brexit, you know, there's a, a lot of unknowns that could provide opportunities. Um, but I do think with e-bikes and, and more people cycling, so if we, if we move out just from mountain biking, which is our kind of focus, but into the cycling industry, you know, uh, we just recently heard from Cycling Industries Europe how they've ripped up their strategy and they're going to treble the, the e-bike growth there as well. Um, so I think with the kind of added complexity, of um, an e-bike with the motor, with the battery, with more people using them for leisure, for commuting with their kids, for uh, transport with cargo bikes, that will bring more manufacturing back to Scotland and the UK uh, and amongst other things. Well, as let, well, let's touch on that then. So that, that is a touchy subject yeah. in many places around the world. Uh, but you tell me, is that a touchy subject here? Have you got uh, e-mountain bike access, do some trails allow them, some trails not? What, what do you allow yep. in this area? Uh, e-mountain bikes are fine. Everywhere. Full stop. Everywhere. Absolutely full stop. Usual caveat, just like on the road, if you de-restrict uh, an e-mountain bike, it's the same story as if you de-restrict a, 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 a normal e-bike, you know, it's against the law. So as long as they're restricted and they're within there and you follow, I mean, developing mountain biking in Scotland, have got some fantastic uh, guidance on responsible riding and do the right thing and you follow all the other laws with the Scottish Outdoor Access Code, you are fine. So I own an e-mountain bike myself. Um, again, as long as you ride it responsibly, it's absolutely fine. Now, you, you mentioned before about the, the Borders Railway, yes. which is a, has been a big success. Yes. You know, it, it, like it's, it's much, much oversubscribed yeah. uh, compared to when they said it was going to be successful. It's even more successful than they ever envisaged. But that stops like 12 miles away. Uh-huh. But tell me about, there's a bus. Yeah. So there's now, a, and it's literally two days old, yes. Borders buses yes. are now going to be taking people from Edinburgh to Peebles 
to Melrose. Yes. And you can put your bikes yeah. on, inside the bus. So they've got specific Brilliant. big old chunky mountain bike. Yeah. Roll in. Yeah. Put your bike on, go and sit down. Well, we can even tie in a wee bit of manufacturing here. So this is, uh, those buses are made in Falkirk with Alexander Dennis. I, I know I used to work for Scottish Enterprise, the Economic Development Agency, and they've been supportful of uh, Alexander Dennis Bus Company. So yeah, I think those uh, three buses that they've just invested in rolled off the production line in Falkirk came down here. And yeah, I mean, I always, recognize that in order to enjoy the mountain biking you jump in your car mm. drive down park it and then enjoy the clean air and the the serenity of the countryside and that irony is never lost on me but i now live in edinburgh myself despite growing up in the area and i so you could get the bus i could get the bus <laughs> so basically at the moment they've got they've got they've got space for two bikes in there i put my bike on there when they came to glentress for the wee demo it fits in absolutely fine it's not that normal one where oh they built it for a 28 mil tire and you try and put your two and a half inch tire in there nope we've got 2.6 inch tires fitted in there absolutely fine um and they're going to increase the capacity of that to, to four um now i think it's absolutely fantastic and they've told me i have not checked it yet that their app will flag up which bike is the uh, sorry which bus, bus is, 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 is 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 bike friendly um and yeah as we say that does edinburgh Peebles, Glentress, Interleith and down to Melrose. So that also means you can connect up with the um, nearby, the, the train at Gala Tweed Bank um, for the ScotRail train. So just thinking of, of me, I'm, I'm, I'm now going backwards to that 1986 when I first came here. Yes. I can't remember how I got here. I'm not even sure if I had a driving license at that point. But it's always been pretty difficult to, to yeah. get out here because yeah. it is that 30 miles from, from Edinburgh. Yes. So you have got to have roughly your own form of mm -hmm. transport if you've got a bicycle. So that's going to transform how I could potentially get here in the future because I could take a train to Edinburgh, yeah. get off the train, get a bus here. Yeah. So we're talking about an extra maybe hour yeah. than it would at driving here, but that, that removes so much yeah. stress if you can just get here on a bicycle because yeah. you've ridden to the station and you're right off. Absolutely, and, and we know that, especially with Edinburgh and Glasgow having huge student populations, um, there's a lot of people who, there's no point in them owning a car. Um, so for them, that'll be fantastic for them to come down here to use these facilities. And obviously, you know, more people that you can get out of cars and public transport, the better. I mean, I think if you look at the ski industry in places like southern Germany, you know, people tell me that in the middle of uh, Munich, you can walk out in your ski boots and uh, skis, jump on a tram, jump on a train, jump on another train, jump up on a funicular railway and you're in the ski fields uh, ready to go up the lift without even having put any normal shoes on. Mm -hmm. So we're a wee bit away from that, but I, I mean, I'm absolutely delighted with what Borders buses have done for this area. And, you know, you can see, um, I think ScotRail are making a lot of changes to the trains that are going up to uh, Abbey Moor, Inverness. So there's going to be provisions for more bikes there. And uh, I know they're putting new trains on the uh, line up to Fort William, I believe and there'll be, you know, better provision there. So anything like that is, is just good. And it's showing that, you know, a lot of these companies with a wee bit of innovation, they're seeing that there's a big demand for people to take their bikes on public transport. So yeah, it's, it, it's a commercial decision. There's more mm -hmm. people on bikes. Yep. So it makes sense. It's not a charity. They're, they're no. doing this for commercial reasons. Yes. But the very fact that this area, the Tweed Valley, and, and, uh, and, and certainly these centers we're talking about now has blossomed is reason enough for them to, to, to put this service on which which sounds fantastic yeah I mean I think everyone can see that the growth opportunities here um, I mean already in our leasing Walkerburn Peebles area there's you know 
cafes are buzzing, you know, accommodation providers are doing well. They can see that the, the mountain biking and the cycling, you know, has come in. And there's been other investment in infrastructure here. You know, the council in Sustrans converted the old railway line between Peebles and Elise and just extended it to Walkerburn. That's used by, you know, kids on bikes, horse riders, people connecting between all the mountain bike facilities here. So yeah, all them. in all, it's, it's, it's a really good package that's, that's, that's coming in here. So you are now painting a lovely picture, so yes. that people who, who haven't been to this area will, will definitely want to, to come here. Yeah. But we are talking, there was a feasibility study for yeah. where we are now. Yes. So if all of this comes off, and yes. then the caveats are we don't know, Yes. but there is a plan B if this one doesn't come yes. off, because it's, it's, it's an idea that it doesn't rely on this, yeah. this building. But just give me your, uh, your time scale if everything went according to uh, the time scale in your head. Okay. What, would, what would happen here in the next six months, year, five years? Okay. Well, hypothetically, and if everything goes according to plan, um, obviously, as you can see, there'll be a lot of work if the, the mill building's the preferred option and if we can secure it to, to make it good and then to kit it out. Um, I'm going to say... 2022, say three years time, as a, as a, as a guesstimate now. Uh, caveats on that as usual, apologies. That, that, that we have phase one of this up and running. Um, where is it, say by 2033? Um, what I would, my dream is that we have uh, an ecosystem of cycling industry companies within this area, Scottish, Scottish well, local companies, whether they've come from, um, we have a churn of um, entrepreneurs coming through using the facilities here. We have rest of UK and international companies coming in to do product launches, athlete testing camps, um, product development. We've got high-end R&D, as well as maybe doing some initial prototyping here. We then have, you know, maybe spinning off into the, the universities uh, and working on bigger projects. We might have work on there's some work on uh, graphene batteries, on integrated textiles, on you know recycling uh, composite materials, which I know is a hot topic in Very the cycling hot. area. Yeah, and tyres. Yeah. <laughs> so again, coming back to the manufacturing base in Scotland, that's something that they are looking at for wind turbines because wind turbine blades, a lot of the first mm, phases of them are uh, glass fibre and they don't have a way of recycling them. Again, it's not too dissimilar to a carbon fiber composite material. So again, if, can, we, can we maybe take some of the research that's going into recycling that, uh, those, those wind turbine blades and put that into the cycling industry? And then I hope also we see companies co-locating here. So it's not all about the building, it's about the area and the local economy. Can we have companies moving to, to, to the Lothians, to Dumfries and Galloway? to the north of England, to the Scottish borders along here to set up their cycling companies and we've got a, a manufacturing and innovation base here. Thanks to Danny Cow there. For more information on the Mountain Bike Centre of Scotland, go to mtbcos.co.uk. Before we head across the Atlantic, here's a wee promotional interlude from my co-host, David. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And hi, everybody, it's David. And I am here, well, you know why I'm here. I'm here to talk about our longtime loyal and fantastic sponsor, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Remember, that's J-E-N-S-O-N. 
JensenUSA.com. Now, what's Jensen USA? Well, if you don't know by now, you should. JensenUSA.com is the place where you're going to find all of the things that you need for your complete cycling lifestyle. Complete bikes, mountain bikes, road bikes, gravel grinders, everything in between, components, apparel, accessory, tools, shoes, really gifts, everything you can imagine that you would need for your cycling lifestyle. And we're not talking about off-branded stuff. We are talking about name brands that you know, love, and need for your cycling lifestyle. You're going to find those name brands at incredible low prices, and that's all going to be coupled with unparalleled customer service. If you haven't been to Jensen USA before, I urge you to do it right now and every time you need something for cycling because they're going to have it at great prices and you're going to be very, very satisfied with their customer service. Go ahead and check them out. That's at JensenUSA.com slash The Spokesman. Our thanks to Jensen USA for supporting The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast and our thanks to you for supporting our sponsor, Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, back to you. Thanks, David. And now from the rural valleys of Scotland, we go to Motown to talk with Zach Pashak of Detroit Bikes. Zach, you're, you're in Detroit and you are running a company called Detroit Bikes. And uh, congratulations on, I know you're at least halfway to your Kickstarter target. Oh, thanks very much. Yeah, it's it's a new city bike we put out. So I'm ex- you know, that's sort of been the purpose of the company is to encourage more people to ride bikes around cities. So this is the latest one we put out and the response has been really good. I'm excited for it. And your cheapest one? Yeah, it's two, $2.99 is the starting point for this price for, for this uh, bike. And, and that's so- roughly half half the price that you would normally be your bikes are? Yeah, the experiment for me was to try to start a bike company in the U.S. in the hopes that that would encourage more people to kind of get into the story of their bike and become more passionate, kind of like what micro brewing did for beer in America. Um, sort of like the micro distillery or micro brewery of, uh, of bikes. Um, but the unfortunate thing is that it's really expensive to make bikes, especially in the U S and to compete with China. So our bikes have been more expensive than where I wanted them to be. So this one, um, has an imported frame because we've got this big factory set up. We still do the assembly. We do the wheel building packaging. So it's a lot more content than you normally see on on a bike sold in this country. But, um, but we were able to drop the price down. So now it's a really competitively priced bike still coming through our factory. Uh, we've been at making bikes now for like, you know, five or six years. So I think it's really well made. We've teamed up with Ben Serrata who really knows his stuff. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited. I think this gives our, my company a chance to uh, to really kind of play at the same table as as the other companies that are out there. Is this your first one that is not made in the U.S.? Uh, well, so last late last year, we came out with a line of bikes that had imported frames, um, and that so we have a version of our A type. Uh, and a version of our B-type and a bike called the Axle. And the Sparrow's the fourth in that line. Does it not, I mean, I'm being rude here, does it not spoil your story in that, you know, a, a big part of the story since you founded it 
in, in 2011 was, you know, you're reshoring, you're bringing bicycle manufacturing back to the US. Are you almost not saying, uh, well, we kind of failed and we can't do that all the time if we want to hit this price point? Yeah, I don't know. It's not rude. It's a really good question. And it comes up a lot. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Um, because I think that it is, it is a, a reaction people have for sure. Um, so I don't feel like we failed. Um, we're, you know, my company was able to deliver a US made bike at a price point that hasn't been seen in this country in, in many decades. Um, it's just, it still wasn't something that consumers on mass were really all that excited about. And, and the consumers that I'm talking about really are the bike stores. So we can have, we have great customers who love our bikes. Um, but most people buy a bike through a bike store and where we really ran into the challenge was bike stores. Bike stores are very opposed to the idea of bringing in something a little bit different. And they're very opposed to the idea of having to talk about origin of product, because if they brought in our product and started mm -hmm. talking about it, they'd have to point out that every other bike on their floor is made in China. And, mm -hmm. and so we had a, a heck of a time trying to get into bike stores. And, and it was quite an experience. I mean, I, I like it, you know, I go back to that microbrewery kind of um, analogy. It would be like if all the bars in the country sold, you know, Budweiser and some microbrewery came along and they all told them they had to be more like Budweiser. Uh, you know, that, that's what I feel like I'm running into because all these shops are carrying these, you know, major label Chinese made mass market bikes. And this little independent, you know, plucky company came along and, and they just slammed the door in my face, you know, repeatedly. And, and just told like each different shop would have a different thing that they said I had to do. You know, whether, you know, one was saying I needed more colors, one was saying I needed, you know, a different crank or whatever. I mean, it was just, it was all over the map and it was, you know, really disheartening. And so that's where, you know, the company's kind of morphed and changed a little bit into where we are now. So have you not made bikes for bike shops? Like, you know, a bike shop say, make me a hundred, Zach, and, and we'll uh, put our shop colors on? You've not done stuff like that? I've had some inquiries about that, but we've never, um, never really had much movement with that. The bike shops, there, there's not a lot of bike shop branded bikes that are sold out there. Um, but if they want, I mean, we would be an option for that because it's harder to get lower quantities made in China. So, you know, we, our minimum order quantity is 10. So we have had some, some success with smaller runs, but it's usually not bike shops. It's usually hotels. It's, um, you know, different businesses, businesses that want to have a really cool Christmas present for their employees. We'll do custom branding. Our biggest success custom branding was Jabouri. I find that very strange because here in the UK shops doing their own, brand of bikes is relatively common you know the the like the the chain store big independents they have their own brands of bikes so evans um, halfords they'll all have their own brand of bike and then even like small shops like with like one or two locations in london um and that's both condor which is a famous shop pearson cycles uh, is, a, is a very small dealer but they have their own brand of bike. It's just a way of differentiating. Yeah. So you don't have a Trek, you don't have a Candale or only those brands. You also have your shop brand and that's where you probably make most of your money. So I'm right. really surprised that American companies, bike shops haven't latched onto that and are just getting, you know, produce 250 bikes from, from well, you. I've, 
I've got an idea of why that might happen. And so first I'll just ask you, do you know where those bikes are produced for those stores that, that oh, are? Yeah. Yeah. This is a good point actually. Yeah. They'll be Asia. So they're, they are, they are UK shops putting their names on them, but they are generally produced in Asia. So rebadged in effect. I see. So they are still coming from Asia. Cause I was going to say that it might be because the European union, I mean, I guess not for long for, for, um, you know, for England, but, um, but uh, there are still bike manufacturers in Europe because there's been an aggressive tariff imposed on Chinese imports. You probably mm -hmm. know more than I do, but mm -hmm. uh, we didn't, we didn't do that same thing. So we didn't really protect our industry and we don't have one. So there aren't any smaller players that, that, you know, stores could even go to, they could go to mm -hmm. Asia or, you know, buying in high enough volume. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm sure you've, you've, will have heard because everybody in the in, comes into the bike industry hears this joke pretty early on and the joke is you know if you want to make a small fortune or if you want to make a fortune in the in the bike industry you know a small fortune, you start with a large one that's the joke I've, i ruined the joke there but basically yeah. if you want to make a small fortune, the wine industry or the, yeah the, the wine it's the industry. same thing you want to make a small fortune in this industry you've got to start yeah. with a with a large one so have you run into that because you didn't come from bikes yeah. Um, so I, my intention of getting into this business, I, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate, I guess, in my life that I didn't need to go out and pursue making a fortune. And that's not what I intended to do. I obviously want this company to break even, you know, hopefully pay me a little bit of money at some point. Um, but really, this is about my move to the city of Detroit and trying to figure out what a business is that I could start here that would contribute in, in a number of different ways. So in terms of job creation, changing the kind of view of Detroit in terms of you know making it more of a, a place people thought of positively, and also changing the perception of what Detroit can do, and then also what the interests of Detroiters are. And so in, in, in a few of those fronts, I, you know, I've, I've made incremental progress, and I think the city has, has blossomed into this incredible place and I've really been blessed to be part of that story but yeah for me it wasn't it wasn't about trying to make a fortune if I was trying to make a fortune I probably would have steered clear of bikes I probably in financial services or you know something like that. so why why Detroit because you're not from Detroit you're Canadian yeah yeah so I was born in Calgary and got really interested in music and music venues I started a music festival um, and through that, got really interested in politics and cities and, and started reading a lot of urban planning kind of policy documents. And I ran for city council in Calgary. And as I was going through that process and experience, I got incredibly interested in, in Detroit, um, just thinking about cities that have been successful and cities that have failed and how urban planning has played a role in that. And got really interested in transportation policy. And it just kind of dawned on me that there's only so much I could do as a city councilor or even a mayor of a city. There's, there, there needs to be a shift in how people think about how we move around cities. I realized that that was, to me, that kind of seemed like, like the secret weapon. You know, if we could just, if we could just get people to think a little bit differently about that, we might start, you know, seeing some real progress in our cities. One of the things that really frustrated me was parking policy. You know that if people wanted to open a small business in my in my city of 
Calgary, they had to have X amount of parking spots. And it led to the creation of these, you know, downtown mini strip malls with parking spaces in front on the, on the street side. And then the business in the back hidden behind the cars and just made for an awful city, an awful experience and, you know, just a bad place to live. And, you know, it kind of made, it, it just furthered this, this, uh, fleeing to the suburbs that, that we see because downtown's no fun to be in. So I, you know, as all those thoughts were kind of bubbling around in my head, uh, I took a trip to Detroit and I just fell in love with it. And it's, you know, for a lot of people, it historically, you know, at least for the last 30 or 40 years has been a hard place to fall in love with. Um, so it's famous for its, its ruin porn. It's, it's, you know, lots of factories that are just all, including the Ford factory, all smashed up and with their roofs out and all that kind of stuff. So has that improved in the last five years? Is Detroit becoming less of a ruined porn place? It's a miracle, the city, over the last five or six years. I mean, billions of dollars have been invested in the downtown core. We have a great mayor. We have a great city planning department. And they're actually, <laughs> I mean, it's, it really has felt like I've been living through a miracle. Uh, in the city of Detroit, this, the change that's that's underway, and you know, people seem to be aligned toward doing the right things here, and they have kind of wind in their sails to actually get them done. It's 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 incredible. When I was in Detroit, Zach, and I was with a bike advocate, uh, and he was showing me around, and I know there was a the the, the bike advocacy organization there was saying we need more bike lanes. But we didn't actually need them at that point in time because certainly in downtown, so Woodward Avenue, um, that kind of area, th there was no cars in the center of Detroit. Right. There was just nothing. And this was why it was really freaky. You were in a major U.S. city, obviously Motown, Motortown, and there are no cars. And that wasn't by design. So somebody you know, didn't plan the cars away. The cars just weren't there because you obviously had the, the the brain drain. You had the population uh, drain away. Um, oh, and, and racism. I mean, I think the largest factor in Detroit really has has been racism. Um, the the majority white population just left the city, mm -hmm. and so it was you you had a third of the population, you know, and a much smaller tax base trying to pay to upkeep this huge city that had been abandoned by the majority. And uh, and it, you know, it suffered the, the consequences. And then, of course, the crack epidemic in the U.S. and institutional racism that's held, you know, black people down for for decades, uh, you know, just all these things piled on top of each other. And this population was hit badly. Mm. I mean, this is really struggling. Um, but yeah. And has you, that changed? When, has when that I moved here, changed? So sorry, go ahead. Has that aspect of the city changed in the last five years? Well, I'd, I'd hate to try to paint a picture that it's completely, you know, done a 180, but I think it's just remarkable, the progress and the strides. And, you know, kudos to the people who have been here and stuck it out because, for example, me as a, you know, a, a doe-eyed, you know, puffy-faced white Canadian boy who showed up, I was welcomed with open arms and and with genuine warmth and welcomeness. And that's you know, one of the, the reasons I fell in love with the place, um, people here have been welcoming of, of uh, you, you know, the, the changes that are taking place. And it's, it's, it has, for the most part, I think it's been incredibly positive. Gentrification is always a little tricky 
you know, some people do get moved around and change is tough, no matter what kind of change. But, you know, this is the type of change, in my opinion, at least that Detroit needed to see and wanted to see. Um, Zach, so the question I asked before, which was um, the bike lanes, you didn't need bike lanes in Detroit because there were so few uh, cars around. Is that different? Do you need bike lanes now? Have, have Basically, have motorists repopulated the center of Detroit? I'll get on a soapbox for, for just a short while here. Um, so I think that there, the idea that there's a quantity of bike lanes that there, that then somehow makes a city safer has been a, has been a mistake. Um, so Detroit yeah, painted all these bike lanes throughout, you know, the, the vast kind of spread of, of the, the, the almost wilderness of, of Detroit. Um, but they were really useless bike lanes. And so, um, it was almost more just like padding the numbers. Um, but to your point, downtown wasn't packed with cars. And so you could kind of just ride around on the streets if you wanted. That has changed. It's a lot busier, especially in the in the downtown core right now. And they've put in bike lanes, but but they've put in protected bike lanes, you know, well-painted bike lanes with little stanchions. And that has been remarkable to see. So that's really coming along. We've also, I think that y- you need bike lanes plus some other stuff and and we're starting to get that plus other stuff too. So bike parking, um, you know, there's a train that's been put right down Woodward Avenue um, to kind of uh, complement cycling in the city. So yeah, we're, we're moving in that direction. It's by no means, um, you know, Copenhagen here yet or anything like that, but Mm. I I think that they're pointed in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have Henry Ford still working for you? Henry Ford II, I sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, his story. That's a fantastic video. I, 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 I do recommend. I'll put in the show notes for people to, to go and watch that video. Uh, that was fantastic. His gravelly voice when he came on. And it was just a great film. Yeah, we were really lucky. So when Detroit Bikes started, there was all this activity in Detroit. There still is, but it's the story has been told you know a number of times now. But back then, a lot of big companies wanted to tell the story of this Detroit thing that was going on. And so Microsoft came along and they just produced that whole thing for us for free. Um, just to like tell the story of small business. Um, I, I mean, I, at that time, wasn't even using any Microsoft products. They just came and <laughs> it was, it's a beautiful video for sure. And it really, I think tells people, you know, it really tells the story of what's going on in Detroit pretty nicely, even though that was, you know, maybe four or five years ago. So the city's, you know, even a lot different now. Hmm. Yeah, it sounds different. I mean, I guess from lots of people, that's a massive improvement. And other people, it's like, well, they may have liked it in that kind of grungy, neglected sort of way. Do, do, do you get that feeling that people actually sometimes liked it being neglected and, and don't like it being smartened up? Well, it's pretty selfish, though, I mean, of those people. So if you've got like a fetish for down and out, mm. you got to understand people are really suffering. So you, you, it might be, it might add color to your experience, but that there's a family, you know, who, who's having a hard time feeding their kids and a kid who's going to a school that the teachers aren't showing up at, you know, that, that create that kind of place. So um, I think you better be on board with this positive change or else I don't really have a lot of time for you. Um, that said, I do understand the point because I moved to Detroit in 2010 because I fell in love with Detroit in 2010. I don't know if if I moved if I if I came and visited Detroit, the a Detroit that looked like it does today. I wonder if I would have wanted to move here. I might have thought, yeah, that ship has sailed. 
No, I, I don't know. Hmm. Because you said there was a, a train. I mean, it's a, a, an urban tram down the centre of, or on, on Woodward now. Well, that's, that's sounding like a successful North American city if you're putting in transit and that kind of stuff, or Canadian it, city. It, it, yeah, no, it really looks like a successful North American city. It's really starting to look that way. I mean, a big thing in, in, in America, of course, is sports. We have all the major sports franchises. Not a lot of cities in, in America have that. We have all of them, and they're all within a stone's throw of each other in brand new buildings. I mean, they've, they've poured billions of dollars into the downtown core here in Detroit. Um, there's obviously still more work to do, but um, it's a huge development. And lots of, I mean, condos are going up, apartment buildings, um, all kinds of stuff. It's, it's, it's wild. So are you riding that wave? And if you found your company when Detroit was kind of still down in the dumps, it's no longer down in the dumps, it's an up and coming city. Is that benefiting you or did you actually benefit from, from that? that previous story huh great question i probably i benefited more from the previous story i think now the brand can get a bit lost i mean we have two or three new restaurants that open every week um but back when detroit bikes opened up that wasn't really the case you know it was like if a new restaurant opened in a three-month period the whole city would talk about it and go check it out um so any new brand or business it was like it was kind of a big deal um, and now that's, now it's not really the case. So probably I benefited more before that said, um, you know, there's a lot of people coming into the city and spending money and the people from the suburbs who kind of always had this force field, keeping them out, uh, this mental block, uh, are much more inclined to come down and enjoy the city. So I think that at the end of the day, you know, maybe storytelling wise, we're a bit more lost, but I think probably sales wise, we're seeing a benefit. And what about you personally? Because you, you you bought the building that you, you're making your bikes in? Yeah, the value of that building has probably gone up. But um, the value of my house is probably the best investment I made in town. I didn't want to come down and be a real estate speculator, speculator although damn, I wish I had at this point. You know, it's the values of certain properties are, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 times more than what they were before. But um, but I bought kind of the biggest house I could in town and I, I had sold a small house in Vancouver, which translated at that time to a very, very impressive house in Detroit. And, and so that's, that's been kind of cool. Just, you know, my, I've got like a movie star just moved into my neighborhood and, you know, people are all fixing everything up and, and values there are going up. So I've, I've benefited on that front for sure. Okay, so let's go back to Henry the Ford the Second and your other staff. So, how many people have you got working there? Right now, we're we're about uh, ten or twelve. It's uh, we're, we're really shrunk down. We kind of built up all our bikes. We're sitting on a fair bit of inventory right now, just waiting for some other orders to come in. And how many of those are builders? How many of them are actually making chromelly or taking chromelly tubes and then making those tubes into into bikes? Well, there's a few different processes. So um, assembly is part of that. Wheel building is part of that. Paint is part of that. But if you're talking about just like welders and fab people, I'm, mm. we've got three or four people doing that work right now. Mm -hmm. 
So and were they welders so before you took them on, or did you train them up? I mean, because you've lost a lot of the bike skills, the bike building skills in the U.S. So, so how did you get people to to reskill? Yeah, it's been incredibly hard. I mean, it's a real, it's been a real uphill struggle. Um, I, when I opened the factory, by the way, I should just to go back to the staffing point, just to give you a, a sense of it. At our height, we had 85 people working in there on one shift. And so we were producing, you know, with, with, with one shift about a third of what we felt we would be able to. So I think, and that even wasn't full. So we could probably get up to about 250 people working out of that building if we were at full capacity. Then to go to your question about just the process, it's astute of you to ask. Um, it is incredibly hard to bring an industry back to a country once it's left. You lose all that institutional knowledge. So when I built out the Detroit Bikes Factory, and also for me, it was you know a chaotic journey um, in that like you know I, it wasn't my background. I'm I didn't go in as this hero of manufacturing who's going to figure this stuff out myself. Um, but when I went in and, and started the company, I hired a, an ex-auto guy, um, a mechanical engineer, and he had a, a small crew of people he'd worked with um, before that had different skill sets. And we went out and just tackled it, you know, just tried to figure it out. And we were building our own production machinery. Like we didn't even know you could buy the equipment to make bikes because nowhere in the world sells that. And we didn't even know that you needed it, you know, because no one had any experience and we couldn't find anyone with experience. And then the few people in the U.S. who do know how to make bikes have turned into this weird sort of cult of the guys that I tell, I explain it like these men who think that they're making samurai swords, like they're very precious about it. So they wouldn't give me the time of day. I mean, I didn't come with enough pedigree for them to even want to talk to. So yeah, that's cult stuff. It's boutique and it's like, you know, Brooks saddles and it's, it's leather this and it's just high end, very exotic stuff. So you're not, you're not hitting the same customers there. You're, you're going for a very different customer. I'm not trying to make something precious. I'm trying to make something that gets people riding bikes around a city because I think we have to change the way we get around cities if we're going to survive as a, as a society. So, you know, I have a very different perspective driving me in this than guys like, you know, Richard Sachs, who wants to make a $5,000 spotless, you know, bike mm -hmm. somebody. Mm. <clears throat> but and how many bikes do you make in a year? What, what's that? How many bikes do you make in a year? What do you? I, th I think at our peak year it was about 10,000 bikes that we made out of, out of our facility. That mm -hmm. Manufactured plus assembled. That was the year when we also had a big contract. We did the assembly contract for, um, the Brooklyn expansion of the New York City bike share program. So that was motivate, is it? What's that? Motivate? Yeah, motivate. motivate? That, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. But yeah, it was really hard. I mean, sorry if I'm rambling on, but just when you go back and like if you if if a listener were touring through our factory, I'd be able to show them the machines that we built that we just had to figure out, you know, we were taking old drill presses and turning them into bike machines. And then years later, I, I ended up learning about this company in Taiwan called, I, think, I don't, I always pronounce it wrong, but Shiztung, who make equipment for the bike industry in Asia. And so my equipment mm -hmm. on my factory is written in Mandarin, you know, but, I, and it took me forever to even figure out how to buy stuff from China. I mean, I don't know anything about China. It was, it's been a, a big process to develop even that like global, global reach. But now I can go buy a piece of equipment that actually is made to make bikes and it is 
light years better. <laughs> I mean, we, we tried, you know, and, and we were able to kind of produce stuff, but, but it's just that, that idea of institutional knowledge and, you know, a country losing its ability to do this stuff and rebuilding it. So for example, to your question about the welders, we basically became a welding school. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no welder in this country who knows how to weld TIG weld, you know, I mean, there are some who could probably pump it out if you sat them down at a desk, but nobody's making 10 frames a day, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're making a frame, like they're good bike welders are making a frame a month. And so, mm-hmm. so it's a whole different process. And, and so the best thing for us is we take people who aren't experienced welders, because experienced welders are working on big industrial stuff. They don't want to come in and fiddle around with this TIG welding, you know, that's basically like sewing, you know, it's like a fine art. Um, so we take people with, with less experience and we train them you know, we had a welding school come in and actually consulted with us for a month and now we've turned into our own kind of mini welding school. Mm. Yeah. That's similar to, uh, Pashley in the UK who did exactly the same. And then I'd have asked the same, that's how I know to ask that question because, you know, their experience of, you can't actually get these people off the street. You've in effect, you've got to teach them yourself because you, they, these skills are not really out there at this level. You know, you're right for the, 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 the custom fabricators who are making these high end ones, it's there, but not lower down the chain. So that's interesting. So tell me about your bikes. You told us about your Kickstarter bike, which is the Sparrow. Tell me about your other bikes. What else, what else can you get from Detroit bikes? The first bike we made as a company is a bike called the A-Type. And that was my, and my vision was that we would be a company that would make just one bike and it was supposed to be the A-Type. Um, it's a bike with a curved top tube. So it's kind of easy to step on and off. It's not a full step through, but it's, uh, it's still a bit more accessible, but it's a nice classic look. My vision was that, you know, as, as, as Americans were starting to kind of think about bike culture and urbanization, there was a lot of interest in the like that classic Dutch orange bike. And then, mm-hmm. so, you know, I, people kind of know about the Chinese flying pigeon. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of this like bike for everybody, like a simple starter bike that is just your bike to get around town and them being kind of uniform. So I had this kind of grand vision of, of being the company that makes the American version of those two other bikes, but like that the A type would be this ubiquitous American transportation bike. So just like an entry, entry level, you know, you're not going to stress too much if, you know, you lock it up downtown, but it's still, you know, really well made and durable. So that's the vision behind the A-Type. After a while, you know, me trying to sell this bike to bike stores, they all kind of told me, well, you need, you know, you need a, you need a step through frame as well. So we thought, well, easy enough, we'll make a step through. So that was the B-Type. We basically just inverse the top tube. There's of course, some more engineering that goes into it than just that, but so that's the B type. After a while, we decided, well, these stores need something else. Let's do this bike called the C type. And that was sort of in the, in the fashion almost of a surly steamroller. It was a single speed with a knobby tire, kind of like a urban utility single speed. Um, and then where did we progress from there? I guess the next bike we made was called the Cortello. That bike mm-hmm. came, came about, my wife and I were in, in uh, California staying at a vineyard and they had some bikes that we could borrow. And I think she borrowed a bike that I think had something insane, like 28 gears on it <laughs> and had the worst day of riding. You could imagine she was just so frustrated. I had taken, they had a, 
a more basic bike that I think had, you know, five speeds or something. And I was just doing fine riding around, but she was have, having this hellish time because she was always cross geared. And, and so I thought, you know, what would be the perfect bike for that place we were at? Like, what is the bike they should have for their customers? I know they probably don't know how to get that bike. And I know a bike store is probably not going to sell them that bike because the bike store is going to tell them that they want 28 gears if, you know, depending on who the salesperson is. But mm-hmm. if it were an ideal world, what would they have had kind of in their, in their, uh, in their hotel lobby for us to take with us? And so that's why I designed the Cortello. It's sort of like a trail bike, a few more gears, but it's, it's a one by, so it's, you know, simpler, um, mm-hmm. nothing too fancy, but just, you know, just a nice quality chromoly frame. And so you're benefiting from like the steel is real, you know, back to the original material kind of vibe. Or do people go, why are you making this out of steel and not aluminium? Aluminum, oh, sorry. No, either one. That's good. Um, I, uh, I'm i benefiting from the steel is real movement amongst people who really understand bikes. But there's sort of this, this big crust layer of people who kind of understand bikes who tend to be pretty negative. And i sorry, I've brought it up a few times in the course of this podcast, but that group has just been really hard to appease. So that section, you know, bike mechanics, basically people who work at bike shops and own bike shops uh, often don't really get that with steel is real bike industry. People, people who've been around the industry for a long time and really do understand are always excited and they always give me a pat on the back. And then down to the actual customer level, they don't know. A customer, I think, typically doesn't know that there are choices between aluminum or steel on a bike. Mm. I do know about steel. They're probably not going to know that there's different types of steel. So, mm-hmm. so our our effort to make these nice chromoly frames, you know, sort of falls a little flat. To be honest, we're trying to get that education piece out there. But it's a tough marketing angle to to first have to educate your customer and then sell them on the benefit of what you've educated them about, which is you know really where the sparrow comes in. It's just lightweight, so I yes, I want customers to know about chromoly and to care about it and to realize that materials matter in their bike. To you know to go back to beer, just like the ingredients in your beer matter. Um, mm. We're just not there yet as a consumer culture around bikes. So are you not? Are you not benefiting from the the Donald Trump effect? You know, USA, USA, USA. People, why would they buy, you know, a Trek made in China when they could be buying a Donald Trump customer could be, you know, kind of person could be buying a Detroit bike made in the US? Well, I think maybe this is a little prejudice of me, but I don't think a Donald Trump person really thinks Detroit is a cool place or really thinks cycling is very cool or really believes in urbanization uh, the way that I do. And so, I mean, America is a, just like any country, you know, there's a lot of different types of people. I think Donald Trump's approval rating in this country is something like 30%. Um, so the majority of people <laughs> I think who live here aren't, aren't really down with Trump or that idea. You know, I ultimately what customers in America want is something that they can afford. You know, a lot of people here are pretty broke. Uh, or heavily indebted. So you've got these kind of two tiers. You've got people who either want the thing that's the most expensive and sure there's bikes out there that are five grand and there are amateur cyclists who ride around on them just because they got a ton of money. 
but for the type of people I'm trying to make a bike for prices is, is really the bottom line. So yeah, they're happy to be Americans and happy to live here and love their country. But at the end of the day, they're going to buy the thing that that's priced, priced the best for them. So let, let's end um, this particular conversation by going back to where we came in, which is the Sparrow. So you've, you've got 161 backers. I'm now looking at your, your Kickstarter page. I get this in pounds, not in, in dollars, because I'm visiting from the UK, but I can see that, and I'm guessing you've got a $90,000. Is that a $90,000 target? Hundred thousand, hundred thousand dollar target. Hundred thousand, sorry, because I've got it seventy six thousand nine hundred eighty five pounds as your your target. So you're 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 more than halfway now. Yeah, we're we're coming up on must be around sixty ish percent. Mm-hmm. And you've got twenty six days to go. Yep. Shipping and I'm looking at- is a little tricky. That's something I got to sort out. If you wanted to buy a bike, it would be it would be expensive to get you one. It's very expensive to ship a bike. Hmm. I mean, this is just because it, it just translates it with the 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 cost right. um, when you're looking from the UK. And my second question was going to be: So, have you done Kickstarter before? But then I can actually just click in and see you have done Kickstarter before. So you did the Detroit Sea Bikes American Single Speed, uh, and that was funded. So it's a hundred hundred six percent funded. So you have you have been here before with with Kickstarter. Yeah, I learned I learned a lot on that first one. It's tough. Kickstarter's not easy. It's a real struggle, but I'm really happy with how we're doing. So yeah, 60 60% funded in the first 3 or 4 days is is a good sign. It means you're pretty likely to to succeed with it. Yeah. And how are you promoting that? How are you getting that out there apart from talking on the spokesman cycling on table podcast of course? Um, so yeah, local media is a big one. I was on a local TV show. Metro Detroit has over 5 million people in it. So our biggest customer base is, is a local one. Um, Mm -hmm. for them, they get free shipping. So that helps, um, Mm -hmm. or free, free pickup, I should say $20, Mm -hmm. but, um, but so yeah, local media helps. We have a big email list. We've got about, I think 20,000 emails of people who've been to our website and signed up. So our website is www.detroitbikes.com. We send out emails to remind people. Um, and then there's just personal networks as well. Basically, you, with Kickstarter, you got to just kind of pull out all the stops and harass everybody you know for the full 30 days. Mm-hmm. It's annoying, but uh, it's what uh, what needs to be done. Well, Zach, I wish you luck with your... Um, and it does look as though it's going to be a, a, a successful project. A, you've done one before, so you know how to do it. And B, it's kind of, yeah, you're right. You've got it four days in and you're 60% there. So just looking at that from the, the normal bell curve that you have to go through on Kickstarter, then yeah, you're going to make it. So uh, well done. I'll, I'll, I'll go out. I won't say good luck because you are going to make this. I'm pretty sure. So uh, uh, well done. And uh, thank you ever so much for talking to us today. Carlton, thanks for your thoughtful questions. I appreciate it. Thanks to Zach Pashak there. And thanks to you for listening to today's show. As always, show notes and more can be found at the-spokesmen.com. As I previewed at the start of the show, we should be recording a roundtable episode on Sunday. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.